name is Jill and these are Jill's Journals Out Loud. Today is Tuesday, I believe it's November 1st, 2022. I can't believe time has moved so radically quickly. So just as a preface, uh, this is going to be a conversational podcast over Uh, kind of a compilation and a bringing in of a lot of things that we've been talking about over here. It's going to be uh, probably kind of rambly and I have to warn you that it's later in the day and so the dog is alert. There's lots of things going on outside and if I told you what was going on technically you would scream along with me which makes it very difficult because it's easy to lose focus when I have my content all set out and then I spend a ridiculous amount of time messing around with the tech. I have never had so many issues and I have to tell you it's driving me crazy. So we're going to take a deep breath, breathing in, breathing out, remembering to get that air out of our lower lobes because that's where the magic happens. And uh, you saw from the title it's going to be or is some version of food, famine, and love. And, you know, I've been playing around with the words survival, sanity, and sacred, and sacred duty for a while now. I posted, you know, that clip about Viktor Frankl uh, and how those who are most likely to survive are those who are moving forward with meaning, finding meaning in whatever's happening. And, you know, even if you're stripped naked and you've had everything taken from you, you still have the choice to decide how to act. He calls that attitudinal, uh, you know, meaning. And, you know, it's one of those things that we think about, but most of us have not been, you know, in a situation where we have to really think long and hard about what we're going to do when things are hard and going on for a long time, right? You can get through any kind of painful crisis in the short term, but long-term crisis, long-term chaos, long-term suffering, that can break the best of us, you know? There's one thing to just do a little bit. It's a whole nother ball of wax. And uh, I'm going to try to put some of these links below, but who knows with the way things are going right now. But I was listening to uh, a guy named Michael Yon. Y-O-N, and he is uh, someone after my own heart. He is a Green Beret that travels the world. He goes into, you know, the really dangerous places, and he also likes to think of himself as uh, reconnaissance. He's gaining intel about all the stories that we're hearing, because I think if there's anything that's been a consistent feedback and theme about the what you want to call fear porn or whatever is that what's real and what's not and it's very difficult to discern from you know the inside our own little worlds what's really going on in faraway places that has tremendous impact for us and it's been fascinating to me you know to watch the propaganda because once you sort of understand that nobody's telling the truth you can see how it's really difficult unless you're standing there looking at it to know who's telling the truth and so one of the things he does is he goes to these places to try to learn what the truth is and uh, you know you've heard me over the years talk about the grand solar minimum and you know the catastrophe cataclysm coming and uh, you know is it going to be an ice age and what kind of uh, you know changes are going to happen to our climate to our earth to our life Uh, you know we're all 
probably very aware of this idea that we are on the verge of some kind of war, how America is affected, or other countries besides Ukraine is you know kind of up for grabs right now. Uh, right as I'm coming to you, you know, there's a pretty loud drumbeat. Of, we've only got two weeks of diesel fuel left in the U.S. Uh, it's a bigger issue on the East Coast, but rationing has begun. And, you know, we've heard a lot of talk about food shortages. Uh, and we've heard a lot of talk about, you know, people dying from whatever, you know, was injected into them. And it's just a lot, right? What's real, what's true? Because even though when I go to the store, there's lots of empty spaces, there's still food. My gauge right now is I when I go look at eggs, because there's a, I used to get, uh, you know, the, the 60 count uh, case of eggs is, since I've been in back in New Mexico uh, has been my gauge. You know, it was $7 for five dozen, then it was 10, then it was 12, then it was 16, then it went back to 12. And the last time I went to the store a few weeks ago, it was up to almost $19. And so to me, that's what I've been watching. But there's still eggs there. So it's confusing, you know, when we hear about the food processing plants being wiped out and, you know, the, the transportation systems are shutting down and it's just hard to know what's real. But while I was listening to him talk and some other people talk about what the coming famine is, uh, it, what, what I was struck by his conversation, and like I said, my goal is to put one of the interviews uh, in the link here is that uh, it's exactly everything I've been saying that I'm afraid of, that's a reality check, uh, that almost nobody else can get. And what I really appreciate about him is he is a voracious reader of history. And to me, that's the greatest indicator of how things will be as best we can tell. And with every famine comes pandemic, comes war, comes migration. And I've been talking about migration and just walk away for years now. Uh, if you look at my old videos, there's tons of videos on uh, what does it mean to walk away? Could you walk away? What is? What are the signals that you have to walk away? And if you did have to walk away, where would you go? And, you know, the theory is, is that everybody would come here, although I don't know why, because we probably won't have much food either. But there's this idea that someplace else is better than where I am. And almost nobody is in a place where everything will be okay. And so as I was listening to him and I've been thinking, you know, about my own health issues and my own healing issues and my food issues and there's nothing I can eat really that works and how, what a luxury it is right now to be able to even choose what I want to eat, you know, as we quickly close in on a period of time where we'll be lucky if we eat, that... Uh, you know, we're living in a bubble about the realities of all this, and we haven't experienced hunger enough to know the realities of what hunger is. And the brief brushes that I've had, you know, I've had some periods of time in this journey where I just couldn't get enough food. Uh, you know, right now, I, I hadn't been able to get enough food just because, you know, it was so strict and it was just too, I just couldn't figure out a way to eat. And I've had to, you know, back off of that because I was, you know, I've been just too concerned about what's going on with my heart and my hormones and my energy and things. I still don't have an answer. But I also know that 
what lies in front of us is terrifying. And hunger is terrifying. And you can talk all day long about all these other issues, but the one I think everybody will get hit with is the food and famine issue of hunger. Because it's not just about are you hungry, it's about what people do when they get hungry. And a lot of people are going to be hungry. And it's not going to happen everywhere all at once. But the key to it, and this to me is just how stupid we are, is the fertilizer issue. And that's really, you know, what he was investigating is in Germany, uh, BASF, I forget what it stands for, but it's closing down and it's cannot get the energy to produce. They produce over 40,000 different kind of chemicals. And the other major portion of production of fertilizer is in Russia. And we all know where we're not getting fertilizer from right now. And what is absolutely necessary for fertilizer is oil, natural gas, and energy. You can't do fertilizer as a process, I forget what the name of it is, without electricity and natural gas to create the fertilizer. Now, before I go further, I want to back up just a minute. There's two ways to create fertilizer and to, cre to create food. There's what's called an open system, which is what we're in now, and that means that you have to put the nutrients back in the soil because you've extracted them and there's no natural cycle. And so we have to have fertilizer because things won't grow unless it has proper nutrients. Now there's over 90 minerals that we're supposed to get into the soil and into our bodies. Uh, primarily uh, we fertilize with three and nitrogen is the number one uh, issue in terms of, of what we need to get in the soil. And there's lots of plants you know, that will put nitrogen back in. But when you have an open system you are extracting, but you're not, it's, it's not re, re, uh, renewing itself. Now, a closed system, which is what nature has created, is, you know, animals and people poop. Poop fertilizes the soil. Soil grows the plants. Uh, people and animals eat the plants or the grass, or you eat the people eat the animals, and you die and you poop, and it's a closed system. So it loops you get the minerals in your body, you poop and pee out the minerals, the minerals go back into the soil, the soil grows the food we eat, whether it's animal or plant, and then, you know, the cycle continuously renews itself. And if you look at the trend, right, of how we are being told to eat, there's nothing about it that supports a closed system, right? They want us to eat bugs. They want to be vegetarian. They want to do 3D printing of meat. No, thank you. And, you know, when I embarked on this carnivore process and I realized how hard it was with a grocery store, electricity, and a freezer, uh, I started really thinking about what did people do? And, you know, one of the you know, people tell stories, so like the big carnivore people tell you stories about how it was. You know, the vegetarian people tell you stories about how it is or was. And people just tell stories to support what their beliefs and lifestyles are. And But there's some interesting stories, you know, about the carnivore perspective. But at a practical level, I'm like, what did they eat? Because I am not a six foot five, there's a, you know, story about the Na a Native American tribe who was primarily meat eaters and they were supposedly 
tall and beautiful and just healthier it was just stunning the Spaniards were like taken by the beauty because the the natives showed up naked and they were just stunned by the health and beauty and vibrancy of these Native Americans and theoretically they were just eating meat and I'm like I can't get enough to eat and I can go to the store and buy and and I can preserve it with a freezer and I can cook it you know when I need to I'm not chopping wood to cook. I'm not expending ridiculous amount of calories to go get my food. I'm driving to get my food. And then I'm just moving it from, you know, one place to the next. And I can't get enough to eat. I can't get enough fat and I can't get enough protein on this process. How in the world did they survive? I have no idea. I have not been able to figure this out because uh, when I see what people are quote unquote calling a carnivore diet, there's no universe that that's the way people ate in the quote-unquote olden days. I don't know what they ate. I know when I've read historical recollections of natives, uh, you know, the, the measure of success was how much uh, meat, deer, buffalo, whatever, you could dry, and that's how you got through winter. But it's very hard for me to believe that because I've been experimenting with drying and curing meat too and I'm like I don't like it I mean it's not very satisfying I certainly couldn't eat enough of it to consume to get actual energy for the day and I have no idea what their source of fat was because almost all my fat sources are dairy right they're whipped cream or butter or uh, olive oil or coconut oil I mean there's almost there's you know baking grease occasionally there's no uh in wild game there's very little fat on wild game so the story of the carnivore doesn't really connect with what my personal experience has been and and i'm in an oh gosh sorry i hope you can't hear that and i'm in an area that is actually on uh, the navajo reservation it's a private part but i'm part of the navajo reservation and people have lived here for thousands of years and i'm like what did they eat because there's elk and deer and rabbits but there's no uh, very little uh, food on the ground there i mean there's lots of plants that you can eat but there's not much fruit there's uh i know there's bees because one tried to come into the house yesterday I'm like oh I should have followed him to his little beehive and you know when uh, there's a guy I forget is Paul something or other is called carnivore MD on YouTube he went and spent time with the Hudsa in Africa which is considered like one of the last hunter-gatherer and they eat protein fruit honey and then tubers and the last thing they want to eat is anything like a green vegetable and so you know, there's some evidence that we don't really know what people ate, but when you follow around natives, you know, he's made the point and others that we still don't know what they used to eat because, you know, there's a, some South African tribes who eat a lot of nuts, and so we say, oh, okay, nuts are good for us. Uh, there's also a belief system that seed and seed oil is one of the worst things that you can eat. Uh, but, you know, the question then is, well, are they eating that because their hunting grounds have been restricted? Or are they eating that because that's their primary food? And, you know, we can ask about drought. When there's less animals, are we eating other foods for survival? Uh, it's a very complex question. But what's underneath all that is what I talked about last time is that the planet holds everything that we need to sustain health just without needing to heal anything. 
but we've perverted, corrupted, and destroyed the system. And now we're so removed from the nature system, we have no idea what we're even supposed to eat, I don't think, because I think we're designed that we can eat a lot of different things, but probably what we don't need are a bunch of toxic chemicals and uh, high carbohydrate with low physical activity. So there's a lot of pieces of this, I think, that are missing. But the reason I'm bringing it up, because the other thing that has come like wildly clear to me in this carnivore quote-unquote process is how much we associate food with uh, socialization, with love, uh, with uh, comfort, with safety, with distraction, with entertainment, with uh, boredom, with art, with beauty, with preparation, with fun. Part of the carnivore process is that you can't, there's nothing to snack on for the most part. So you pretty much are just eating something heavy and fat and then you're not hungry which is fascinating because there's no hunger you know and from the ADHD for those of you who have that uh, we use so much energy in our brain a brain normally uses 30% of your body's energy and it screams for glucose but when you get ketones this you know what I call it is the screaming stop so it was quiet so there was no screaming in my brain I need to eat, I need to eat, I need to eat, which is that drive for sugar and carbohydrates, for glucose, for sugar. And it makes a lot of sense to me, you know, if I'm in the wild and I have to spend two or three days hunting, I don't need my brain screaming at feed me, feed me, feed me every three hours. So ketones make a lot of sense. Uh, What doesn't make a lot of sense is, you know, having low energy and my heart going all over the place and And then, you know, I think I mentioned there's something about an insulin spike being able to retain in your kidneys, then they retain the potassium and the sodium. It's amazing that we think we're so scientifically evolved, but there's so much we still don't understand. And, you know, it's just impossible to hunt that much. I uh, am in a position right now where there's lots of elk and deer. I can see the tracks all the time. And uh, for a while, I was seeing them almost every day, which is kind of a catch-22 because they're also a little bit dangerous when it's uh, the season when they're bugling, screaming. That has stopped, but I still see their tracks. Uh, but I think, God, how would I, if I had to bow and arrow catch them, it would be a nightmare. And this was an abundant year. There was water and tons and tons of grass. And and so, uh, I don't know what you guys know about uh, wild Uh, life but when the deer or the antelope or whatever they don't have enough food it's a drought season they just let their babies die in the grass they don't take their babies with them when they travel and so you know with abundance of grass and water comes an abundance of animals with abundance of animals comes an abundance of poop fertilizer and so you're recreating the system but we created agriculture at some point and we took the animals we you know hunted the animals off the land and so we we destroyed the closed system you know they say when they came to America there were just millions and millions of buffalo I would give anything to see that plains you know that corridor across the middle of America where the buffalo moved up and down and their hooves their the hooves aerate the soil the soil uh, then absorbs the 
you know, for the nutrients from the manure. Uh, and again, closed system, closed system, closed system, and everything flourishes. And it ebbs and flows for drought and abundance. And, you know, we came in and civilized and domesticated and we threw everything out of whack. But we're still trying to operate with this idea that an open system is the way to go. But yet we're sitting in a moment in time where the the implements, the fertilizer, the energy, all those things are being taken away. So nature set up this perfect system to keep us fed, to keep everybody happy. We destroyed it and nobody is having a conversation about how the the system was there. There's nothing to invent or create. You know, there's only an open system and a closed system and obviously the open system is no longer available to us if the fertilizer is gone but if we go into a famine we will kill all the animals because that's what people do uh, right now Europe is stripping all the trees no matter what age they are because they have no energy and so they have no heat for winter when people are in a famine or a panic or a pandemic or a situation they're their capacity to function with common sense and long-term thinking goes out the window. And you know, the reason I'm bringing all this up is when I was listening to him and I was sitting here going, you know, we're still having these two conversations. We're having the conversation where it's like, well, everything's going to be okay. Uh, and then we're having the conversation where it's going to totally not be okay. And uh, like you, I don't want to have the it's not going to be okay reality emerge. But, you know, I'm coming to a point where I can't heal. Uh, I'm not going to function and everything's still turned on and plugged in. What do I want to do to create meaning? And as he was talking about famine, I thought, you know, that's going to be the big issue. Food is going to be the big issue because I've learned so much about it just trying to do this carnivore thing you know where I'm just walking around hungry but I don't have anything I can eat but I wanted to commit myself to it and you know I was a hundred percent almost for the first it's been it's about 90 days when you're listening to this so for the first 60 days I was pretty much a hundred percent but the last I would say three weeks I've been experimenting and um, you know had all kinds of weird issues around that but it was really hard it was hard converting you know and so if there's famine you know it's going to be extremely difficult uh you know it's like an addiction you know if you're used to snacking with your coffee or watching you know eating popcorn when you watch tv or going out to dinner with friends or socializing uh you know having wine or alcohol i mean it was like and i mean i don't really drink but i was at this point we're like this is terrible it's so restrictive and yet it's a luxury for me to be able to have this as an option but what if this was a reality right like how do people feed themselves so to me this is going to be probably the biggest issue and I think for right now you know I'm going to think a lot about this because it's it's more complex than I understood it to be it's not just about the food it's about the way you function during your day if you're used to snacking all day and then all of a sudden you don't have access to food that is an extremely stressful place to be 
it's, uh, you know, it's the way we connect. And we, you know, I used to tell you how important community was. But as I was thinking more and more about it, I'm like, in many ways, we've substituted our relationship with food with people, right? And so like almost all human interactions center around going out to eat, going to the bar to drink, something that has to do with food. Like I have for years now, I haven't been able to get anybody to do anything physical. Would you go walk the dog with me? Like maybe once. It's just shocking to me how difficult it is to get people to do social things that don't function around food. And we're just not used to being hungry, and hungry sucks, and then it becomes dangerous, you know, when you're losing a lot of weight. And so, uh, you know, I was struck by Viktor Frankl saying that it is, you know, those who were the most likely to survive a stressful situation, and they were in a famine in the concentration camp, uh, but those who had meaning had the greatest chance. Now, it's not exclusive. Sometimes really mean, scary people, survive. like Hitler, just kept surviving no matter how much people tried to kill him. Uh, I listened to another uh, Holocaust concentration camp story, and what struck me in that story was uh, the guy in it, He it was an old journal his uh, great-granddaughter had translated, and uh, there was a point where one of the Germans snuck him a sandwich. You know, this was like a huge deal. And he stuck it under his shirt and he took it back and he shared that one sandwich with 11 people. And, you know, would we do that? To me, that's an act of meaning. That's an act of sacred duty. It's like we're all hungry. He could have eaten it all himself, but he chose to share it. There was another point in the story when they were planning on their escape, and they talked about the idea, that, or he talked about this idea, that you never held on to your food because it would be stolen. So the minute you got food, you ate it because if you kept it, if you tried to hold it for a later date, people would steal it. And I, you know, I've talked about that, how important it is. It's better to eat it and carry it as extra weight than to just let it sit there because either you're going to have to walk away from it or somebody's going to pick it up and move it for you. Uh, you know, one of the things that Michael Giannis which was so powerful, I wish everybody would listen, is that he said, you know, if you think that you're next to farmland or you're on a farm or you're in a rural area and you're safe, think again. Because, you know, first, the first wave is, you know, people come out and ask, then they steal. And then the people doing all the planning and the work stop planting and working because, you know, the animals have all been stolen, the food has all been stolen, and why am I going to keep trying to grow food when people are just coming around and stealing it? And that's only if the government hasn't come out and confiscated it first. So, you know, what I appreciate about his interview is so many of the stories that people are telling themselves about being prepared and all these other things uh, just aren't just aren't true. And so, you know, I, I realize this is all super depressing. And so, it's been very, very difficult to think about these things and knowing that this is happening and it's going to happen. You just, when you start looking at the numbers and the reality, and it isn't just like an American thing, but, uh, you know, Brazil and India aren't going to have enough fertilizer, so they're not going to have any food. You know, the Middle East isn't going to have a food. Ukraine just, 
announced that they're not shipping out any of their grain, which feeds, you know, big chunks of Africa. Uh, China has bought up all our food and is not sharing. And it's just, go, it's very, very precarious. Uh, we are very insulated and unaware of what goes on out in the rest of the world. Uh, but, you know, the, the rule of thumb is when the cost of food exceeds more than 50% of your income, that's when revolution and riots begin. And that's, you know, how how you lose control of civilization is when there's not enough to eat. I have to move the microphone so there may be some adjustment noises. All right, so we're very, very close to that right now. And if the diesel runs out, it won't be a fertilizer issue. Diesel is how farms run. Propane is how farms run. Uh, And ranching is dependent on farming because uh, most places don't have enough grass. Uh, you know, I've learned a lot about ranching, you know, in my experience. And, you know, in the Southwest, it's like one cow per one square mile uh, is the better number. You know, they can do 12 or 13 cows per square mile. But uh, that's not a lot of cows per square mile. Now, in a lush, green, densely packed area, a grass-packed area, uh, one cow per one one acre, uh, and one square mile is 640 acres. So, you know, there's a big discrepancy about what's on the ground. But when you have a closed system and you're fertilizing and aerating the soil, the grasses take off. And was interesting here, where I'm physically at right now, there's a, you know, I'm on a slope. If you could see the trailer, it's so precarious. Ugh, hold your breath. But at the bottom of the slope was more grass than I've ever seen in New Mexico. It was the lushest area I've ever seen. And I've had money, I would buy that section because you would have, there's so much grass. There's not weeds or stickers or thickets or any of that stuff. There was just really beautiful grass this year. And how rare that is in New Mexico because most of New Mexico, from a distance, it looks like there's lots of grass, but mostly it's just little clumps surrounded by a whole bunch of dirt. Uh, And that's true for a lot of the West. It's not that thick, lush grass that you might have in the East Coast. So uh, we're in a very, very, very precarious moment. And I've been thinking a lot about how I can move forward and where I'm going to be because what would be meaningful in this process. And you know, food and famine are the ones that are going to be the most painful in so many ways. And they're the ones that we could actually do something about. I think that's the other key to this is that, you know, we can't really do much about nuclear war, although we should be running down to all of our government people and demanding. You know, in the olden days, they took them out in tar and feathered, which is horrific. I would never recommend that. But at least they were demanding some accountability. We just sit there and go, oh... Um, but, you know, we can't do much about the medical issues or the, the health care system. We can't do much about uh, all the medical and health issues that so many people are having right now. We can't do a lot about money. The one thing we could do a lot about is food. And we probably won't because now we're moving into winter. That window is closing for most of the country. And what would it be to have meaning when your survival is on the line? Now, I had talked to you guys a long time ago when I first got the, the little puppy here. 
that that was it. I was pissed off. You know, three these three puppies were starving and they were malnourished and uh, they were rescued. And uh, the process, you know, that went on around it was really upsetting and, and stressful in and of itself. And I'm like, I'm never doing this again, right? I'm never rescuing you know I'm terrified of the future I've talked about you know how many loose dogs are out here running around and uh, I don't know if I think I told you, you know, there was a dog that showed up here a couple weeks ago that was so emaciated it was just unbearably painful to see and I caved and I went and put some food out for it now I haven't seen it since I think it belongs to a guy on the other side of the street and the problem is is that even if that dog gets taken away or put down he's just going to go get another one and keep doing the same thing he ties them up he doesn't give them food or water they escape it's horrific right uh same thing with his kids but whatever so uh i don't know if i shared with you there was uh, a mommy cat and a baby cat that were wild out here and at some point it's a little black mommy and a little black baby so the mommy disappeared several of the rabbits disappeared and then the baby was out for a week or so and then the baby disappeared so I thought oh the baby is gone because I hadn't seen her in a long time well she reappeared and she's moves around in the area that's right in front of my trailer when I look out the window I can see her and she's so thin she's just so razor thin but she's so cute trying to learn to hunt and so she's you know jumping on the, the grasshoppers trying to catch birds so I caved and I decided if I can catch her I'm going to bring her inside and the reason I share that uh, it's only been a couple days so she'll eat the food but she but we're not you know I have she's afraid of me so she runs so I don't know if I'll be able to uh, get her in the house or not but but you know my concern was I can't I wanted a cat I didn't want a dog but I don't have the money to feed two animals and uh, you know, I was making the joke because if the food goes away, the cats will be the only ones that can feed themselves because they're the only ones that can catch food outside and eat. But it's so cold. So I thought, I'm going to try. But the point I wanted to make about that is I caved. Like, I cannot watch this poor little kitty. It's getting really cold at night, and it's she's all by herself, and she's curious about the other animals. Uh, I don't think she likes being by herself and Haven likes cats and Haven doesn't like being by herself and so I thought you know one way or the other I'm going to bring her in if she'll come in and if we can't find enough food there's really no difference if we're all starving right just have one more animal which technically feed itself but the idea was you know I said I can't do this and the reality is is I can't not do this and so one of the things that happens in times of great crisis is you don't know who you'll be but what I really was struck with what Viktor Frankl was talking about is there's going to be so much of whatever comes down the pike that we can't control but we can find a way to have meaning in it and what else is there at that point where you know, we've spent a lifetime chasing everything that we think we want, we need, we demand, that will make us happy, that will entertain us, that will give us pleasure, that will satisfy us, that will make us rich, famous, successful, satisfied, content, comfortable, safe. But at the bottom of all of it is that we have this desperate need to be seen, heard, and loved. And, you know, when people are stripped down to nothing, 
they cling to each other because that connection is so important but we use food in many many ways as a weapon or a defense against that connection and probably women you know more than men but men use other things as a way to uh, substitute for love we have a, you know the whole pornography thing and uh, betting and gambling and exercise and workaholic I mean there's all kinds of things that we do that's addictive and all that really is is a way to not have to deal with how we feel because at the end of the day what we all really want to feel is seen heard and loved right we talk about unconditional love and like nature it's the simplest thing in the world because we all have that capacity Uh oh my computer just shut down I don't I guess it's still recording I don't even know it looks like it's still recording so of course as I'm at the peak most important part of the conversation <laughs> Anyways, that you don't need money to love. You don't need money to have dignity. You don't have need money to be meaningful. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be anywhere. You don't have to be anybody special. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be anything. We all have that here, now, immediately, and forever. But we don't value it in the same way we don't value food and we don't value the systems of nature because somehow we think there's something out there that's better this open system endless opportunity eternal potential and now we're going to starve to death because we thought that we could do better there was more somehow it would be better and then there's the closed system which says you know as long as you follow a few rules everybody eats it's all good there's a little waxing and waning but we all have enough and that's the same way love is, right? There's got to be something better. got to be more important. got to be more powerful. But you never appreciate it until it's gone. And that's what, you know, so much of this carnivore experience for me has been, is all the things that I've enjoyed and appreciated about, even though my food has limitations. Boy, when I went super limited, how much it sucked. Just at an aesthetic, it was ugly. You know, I was... I love to cook and it was just greasy and dirty and gross and heavy and you know I thought oh good there you know this will be super simple and it's not super simple it's messy and uh, you know it's just it was it's really hard and I'm still confused as to how people actually uh, didn't die of starvation <laughs> before uh, before agricultural and refrigeration but uh, maybe we'll all get to find out so uh, so that's really kind of my long conversation today about food famine and love and hopefully you know just giving you a lot to think about there are no answers to any of this there is no safety or comfort on the horizon I think for any of us in all ways and you know to me the big decision will be you know how will we find meaning through it because there's no way we're going to be able to control it even if we're doing okay how many you know starving dogs and cats and people and children are going to be walking under our windows uh, and we're going to be looking out going I don't know how much longer I can look at that you know I can tell myself you know I'm going to be a hard ass but I already can tell you I'm caving uh, as we speak and so and it hasn't even begun yet so so that's my, I hope this is recording because I can't see if it's recording right now because it's, 
I just, it's, all of this should be easy. I just feel like the technology is giving me the message. <laughs> I need to give up, but we're still going to, you know, charge forward here. Uh, my plan for the Friday uh, podcast, and uh, I want to put together something for you, quote unquote, hopefully, uh, to really kind of give you your own journaling process to take some time to explore the things that we're talking about here. Uh, the more and more I am thinking about what's valuable at this particular moment in time is that there's going to be so much that we can't control. So the more we can do to manage our internal process of it, uh, I think the better it will be. Uh, and for those of you who are physically writing things down, I'm, I think there will be nothing more valuable than an authentic written record of this period of time to get through. We just learn so much from people and their current experience uh, when you look back. I, I think that's one of the most powerful gifts we can give. So uh, my plan for Friday is to do something, but we'll see what the future holds. Who knows? All right, I'm a little concerned, but we'll just hope that I'm still recording. And with that, my friends, I'll see you next time.